You know, we've been um, in the uh, red letter study off and on for the last, I don't know how many months it's been now. We took some time off over Christmas, of course, and then at the first of the year, I went off on another rabbit trail because I really wanted to try to set the year up right and see if we can break our love affair with certainty and start living a bit of mystery and a bit of, uh, of adventure and uh, realize that the spiritual life is never going to be certain. But we can be convinced, and there's a difference between those two. Well, getting back into it over the last couple of weeks, um, we're at the part in uh, Matthew 6, right in the center, right in the exact center of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so we're halfway through chapter 6, and we're going to talk about fasting today. But before we did that, I wanted to just kind of do a recap, because I'm seeing some faces out here. Some of you have, are just starting with us, and you haven't gone through the, the, red, the red letter study. What is even that? What's the red letter study? It's the words of Jesus, the actual sayings of Jesus, um, that are sometimes printed in red ink in some um, editions of the Bible. So we're going through Jesus' sayings in a harmonized sort of way. All four Gospels are pulling it together to get the best thread of what he had to say in as close to a chronological order as possible, but that's been drifting because it has to. But halfway through this sermon, what is the Sermon on the Mount all about? What is it that we're doing here as we say that we're studying the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' teaching? I've always had this image of the, uh, of the Bible uh, as Russian nesting dolls. You know those, those dolls that go inside of each other? Matroshka, I think they call them, for mother. You know, one doll inside another. So you've got the Bible. Well, inside the Bible, you've got this Old Testament and this New Testament. And then if we look at the New Testament, inside that, we've got the four Gospels. And then inside the four Gospels, we've got the Gospel of Matthew, which is the most Jewish and the most Hebrew of all of the Gospels. In fact, some scholars believe that there really was either a Hebrew or an Aramaic original of Matthew before it was translated into Greek, which is really important because so much of the feeling and so much of the, the information there is coming from this Hebrew perspective, which changes so much. As you know, the two pillars of the effect are to look at Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, an ancient first century point of view, and then also to live a contemplative life, which once we look at Jesus from a Hebrew point of view, we realize he was a contemplative. And so those are the two issues. So inside the Gospels, you've got Matthew. Inside of Matthew, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, right? But inside the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle where we are, you've got the Lord's Prayer. And if you take a look at each one of those dolls as we go further and further down and smaller and smaller, we are getting a more and more concentrated take on everything that Jesus was teaching embedded in the Lord's Prayer alone is everything that he is telling us about his way, about the way of living life into this kingdom, what he calls kingdom, which is not heaven. It's not the afterlife. Kingdom for a Jew who is always focused on here and now is about the quality of life we can have right here, right now, when we are living in presence when we're living that, that sort of non-dual thinking where we can both see the individual form and function of our daily lives, the diversity, the complexity, but through that, behind that, beneath that, above that, we're also seeing the unity of everything, bringing heaven and earth together. That is kingdom, living here now. Making our choices based on that is living in kingdom. It's all there in the Lord's Prayer. But as we break that up 
and break it out, expand it out into the full sermon, three chapters, we find that it's just more development of that same idea. And so this is what Jesus is doing, you know? In chapter 5, remember what he started with. He started with the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes through eight of those. And basically, he's giving us a picture of the finished product. What does a person who's living in kingdom actually look like? What are their attributes? And so we're seeing all of that as if we're turning this person around and looking from all angles and seeing inside and seeing what drives, what the essence is, what informs their choices where their pleasure and deepest desire and deepest purpose are. And then from there he goes to the beautiful metaphors of salt and light. That we are, when we are living in kingdom, we are salt and light to the world. In the ancient world, salt was everything. We don't get that anymore in the age of antibiotics and antiseptics and refrigeration. But salt was all those things to the ancient world. It preserved life by preserving food through the winter. It was an antiseptic, so it cleaned wounds. It also was a seasoning, and so it seasoned their food and added zest to it. It also was acting as a fertilizer for their crops. All those things, he's saying, you are to your people around you when you have come into living this kingdom. All of that. And then you're also light, that which illuminates that which brightens and opens up, salt and light. And for there, he goes into the fact that he's not here to abolish the law, but he is here to fulfill it. And he's here to fulfill it in a very different and specific sort of way. And from there, he launches into what is often called the six antitheses. He lays out six different issues that are right at the center of of Hebrew life at the time. And he's turning them on their heads because he's redefining the law. I'm not here to abolish the law. In fact, he says, the law is going to continue. Every tiny jot and tittle, every smallest letter and stroke will continue until heaven and earth pass away. But if you look at the Aramaic of pass away, the word is abar. Abar means to cross a threshold or to cross a boundary. So it's not pass away as to moving into non-existence. It's actually crossing a threshold. So if you have heaven and earth passing away, what you have is heaven and earth crossing their thresholds and merging into one another. That's what he's talking about. The law is necessary. The law will continue. The law is needed until we have learned to merge heaven and earth within our own hearts. Because at that point, we are living the law. We have become the law. It is written on our hearts, as Deuteronomy 6 says, which means we don't need the law anymore. We're going to be living it. We're going to be making our choices based on that which the law was based in. That is how Jesus says he wants to fulfill the law. But he goes through all of these six, from murder to adultery to divorce to vows to loving the enemy, all these different issues. He takes the law and then he contrasts it with this interior way of looking at it. Do you think just because you haven't killed somebody that you're okay in front of the law? He says, but I'm going to tell you that. Even if you have an angry thought, you're already guilty. Because you've already broken down the relationship. You're already outside of kingdom. You're already moving toward that which could end in physical violence. And he takes each one of those in order and does the same treatment with them. So that people can see the law is not this absolute instrument that they thought it was. It wasn't just about obedience. It's about a transformance that happens if we live in covenant with each other, live in community with each other long enough. 
And then in chapter 6, he does the same treatment to the idea of righteousness. He's going to redefine righteousness now. And for the ancient Jews, righteousness was measured by three different ideas. First, it was almsgiving, charitable giving. Did you do that? That was a mark of righteousness. Prayer was another mark of righteousness. And the third was fasting. And we're going to talk about fasting a little bit more today. But the formula is the same for all three. Because what he's trying to get people to understand is that in that culture, they wanted to telegraph their righteousness. And it was especially the religious leaders and the Pharisees were the main point on this. They would make sure that everybody knew how much they were giving because then they would be seen as more righteous. You know, it was called sounding the trumpet. There was these collection turrets, basically, in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. And they were kind of shaped like an inverted trumpet bell. And if you put your money in, if you put enough and you banged it down in there, it would sound the trumpet. And everybody would look, whoa, they gave a lot of money. You know? And then they would be seen as righteous. And when it was time to prayer, three set times during the day, they would make sure they were on the busiest street corner or in the marketplace so everybody could see them pray and see how righteous they were. He says, don't do that. Don't be like that. He says, when you pray, move into your closet, move into your silent space, your secret space, because then your Father, who is in secret, will be there with you. And this secret Father, this mysterious Father, to move into a prayer, he says, don't use a lot of words. A wordless prayer inside your own inner sanctum and in a place that also affords silence and solitude physically. We're talking about contemplative prayer, of course. But this is what Jesus is trying to instill in them. You see righteousness played out in your culture as if it's a a commodity that you can trade. He said it is deeply interior. When you go inside, when nobody knows what you're doing, and you connect with your father who is in secret and sees what is done in secret, then this transformation can take place. Don't make a show of it. Don't let anybody know what you're doing. You're not righteous because people think you are righteous. You're righteous because it's your deepest desire and pleasure to be so. When your desire has matched God's desire, remember in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done? Same idea here. God's will is kingdom. God's will is his deepest delight and desire and, and pleasure. Sebiana in Aramaic means those things, not will the way we typically think of it. When our will matches God's will, when we have brought God's will to earth and are living it out in our lives, that's the transformation that takes place. That's righteousness. We don't think about it. We don't have to force ourselves to do it. It doesn't feel like an obligation or a restriction. It's just what we would want to do. An inside-out transformation. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus is praying for that transformation to take place in us when our desire becomes the same as God's. What Jesus is trying to get across to us is that the law is never fulfilled in obedience Now think about that for a second because it's going to be a dissonance in your brain, right? Now, yeah, the secular law is fulfilled in obedience because you either obey or you get punished, right? But God's law is never fulfilled in obedience and righteousness is never fulfilled in ritual practice. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work from the outside in. 
This legal obedience, this compliance with the law, this ritual observance that we all have been a part of mean nothing in themselves. Jesus says, when you go to the altar and you're going to leave your gift there, you're going to leave that sacrifice, that offering, and you remember that you've got something against your brother, what does he say to do? Leave the gift. It doesn't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Come on, that's a joke. It doesn't mean a thing if the heart isn't transformed. It doesn't mean a thing if you've got relationships that are at odds. Go fix the relationship. And then come back and give your turtle dove or your pigeon or whatever it is. But it doesn't work that way. The rituals are not what purify us. That works from the inside out. So relationship with God is not legal. It's certainly not contractual. It's not theological. It's not doctrinal. It's not obligatory at all. It's none of those things. Now, all those things have a place, however. It's not, Jesus said, I'm not throwing this stuff out. But I want you to understand how they are fulfilled because they're fulfilled differently than you have been told. They're fulfilled differently than you see it lived out in your culture. All these things do have a place, but they are like training wheels on a bike. Remember when you were a kid? Did you know there's a big debate that training wheels don't really teach you how to ride? But I was a child of the 60s, so we had training wheels. You know those little things that you put on? Yeah, so you can't really fall over. All of these things, law, ritual practice, are like training wheels on a bike. They're a guide. They're a guidance for us. They're pointers that will help us to get the feel of what it is we're trying to do from the outside in so that we can then start to transform. We can get through this process. And in the meantime, we keep the group together. The law keeps the group together, keeps everything fair, keeps everyone in the group, protects people. Of course it's necessary in the group. And it's necessary for us as we're getting started. And we need it, absolutely. Law, ritual practice, until heaven and earth pass away, until they merge in our heart and we are now living this thing. That doesn't mean that we stop following the law, but it'll stop feeling like we're following the law anymore. We're just living our lives. And the same thing with the ritual practice. It becomes a beautiful outward expression of an inward transformation. And nothing we're trying to pull out of the environment, you know, like a vampire trying to get the things that we need. It's coming from the other direction. James calls this the law of liberty. I've always loved that phrase because it twisted my noodle the first time I read it. How could the law be liberty? But that's what it feels like when you make this change. You're not following. You're not complying. It's not restricting anymore. It's just what you want to do. It's written on your hearts, as Deuteronomy says. We are transformed. We have moved into the freedom of love. You know, I say all those things, and they probably sound like, oh, that's beautiful words, but what do they mean? What do they mean to me? What does it mean to have the law written on your heart? What does it mean to have, to know the truth and it makes you free or that you're now living love? What does that even mean? What does that feel like? Does it have any palpable effect in my life? And that's a really good question because we've got to make this practical. If you're being asked to follow this, why would you do that if it doesn't have anything beyond a platitude that you can hang on the wall? What does it mean if you really have moved into this space? It means that you're going to worry less. It means that you're going to have a lot less anxiety. It means there's going to be many fewer nights that you're sitting and laying there staring at the ceiling at 2.30 in the morning thinking about everything that you need to do. 
the questions that are so pressing and so urgent right now that are burning in you will either be come more and more understandable, at least you'll be convinced of something, even if you're not completely certain, or the questions themselves just kind of lose their importance. Those intellectual ideas aren't really what's at issue. And you realize those aren't the things that are really at issue. Those aren't the things that are so important, like they seem to be. And because of that, the choices that you make become clearer. Things that you would just worry over and stress over and, and be thinking on and on about, it seems like they sort of lay themselves out. That it just makes logical sense that you would do this or do that. As your priorities line up, as they become deeply set in your spirit, and you realize, yeah, of course this is the way to go. Of course this is a choice to make. You become more and more unoffendable man, moving into this election year, we need unoffendability, don't we? Because this is going to be one of those years that's going to tweak you. But more and more, as you start to live this life, you realize you're occupying a liminal space. We talk about this all the time. The space right on the threshold, in the doorway, a foot in both camps, where you can still be passionately believing in and working for your camp, but you're not so completely inculcated, you're not so completely have drunk the Kool-Aid that you can't criticize your own camp when it's needed and that you can't see truth when it comes from the other side. To be able to do that, that leads to this unoffendability. We're talking about issues here. They're not any longer attacking your identity, who you are. That's where we get so offended. We're getting a clearer and clearer idea of who we are which allows us just to be. And then we can still be passionate about whatever it is that we are passionate about, but we will also be respectful for someone who holds a different point of view. All of these are traits. And if you go back and look at the Beatitudes again, you will see that's what Jesus is talking about. That humility, that willingness to be vulnerable, that persistence, that patience to get up every day and do things that are invisible to everybody except yourself, and yet they're important to you to do, and it's your greatest pleasure to do so. These are traits. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. A person who is centered, a person that we know that we can count on, that's the kind of person we're talking about. That's worth it. That is real world issues that we can obtain we can attain if we follow Jesus' way. That's what this is all about. Jesus is challenging us to question everything we think we know. He's deconstructing everything we think we know. And I know that word is getting used and overused, but the idea is he's breaking it down. He's showing us that the emperor has no clothes in so much of the stuff that we've put so much stake in for so long. And he's realigning are thinking. He's realigning, realigning this cultural religion that we may have followed for so long into a contemplative spirituality. And there is such a difference between the two. By contemplative spirituality, I mean a spirituality that is not based just on rational thought. It's not a theology. It's not a doctrine. It is the experience of this mystery we're talking about, an experience of God's presence married with and in conjunction with the action of love in our lives. It's not enough just to go in and gaze at your navel and find God that way. What do you do with that? 
after you have made these connections. You can take that into your life and you practice it with the people that are closest to you right in your own home and then outward in concentric circles as you go. But the two need to be present. Contemplation and action. Very different than a cultural religion that is based on doctrine and theology and ritual practice and and defines itself as such. This is a practical way of living that Jesus gave us with his way. Not a theology, not a lot of abstract thought. He gave us a step-by-step way of living life. Do you know his first followers in the first century, the Jewish first Jewish followers? They called themselves Talmidi Urcha in Aramaic, which literally means followers of the way. Followers of the way. Now, note this. They didn't call themselves followers of Jesus. They called themselves followers of the way. Now, of course, Jesus identified himself with the way. I am the way. You don't need to know the way. You know me. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Yes, he was the way. But the whole point was, you can follow Jesus in a vicarious sort of way. You can follow Jesus in a passive way, where Jesus is doing all the work and we just have to follow along in his shadow. Following the way means that you're actually doing what Jesus did as he lived and breathed and taught. That's the difference. They had the handle on it. They understood the difference. We need to reinvestigate that. We need to be willing to let go of whatever it is that we have learned and accrued in our lives to be able to get down to the point where we realize we need to do this in partnership with Jesus, in partnership with our Father in heaven. And that's why there's only one way to the Father. This way of Jesus, the only way to the Father. Because the only way to know God, and that again, yada, yada in Aramaic, the word for hand, means not to know something intellectually, it means to have intimate experience with it. The way a carpenter knows his or her her tools, the way a lover knows the face of their beloved, that's the kind of knowing that we're talking about. Whenever we say know God in scripture, that's the kind of knowing that they mean coming from that Hebrew word. By living this way, living this way and experiencing intimately this God, then we start to understand. And we're going to have to take a descent before the ascent. Everything about Jesus is descending first so that we can ascend with God on the other side. So how does he do this? The idea is that, yes, we've got to clear out our preconceptions. We've got to clear out everything we think we know and everything we think we know about ourselves. We've got to clear that out. That's why he redefines the law. That's why he redefines uh, righteousness in chapter 6 because he's challenging everything they think they know about their spiritual identity so that they can clear it out. And then beyond that is stepping away from the egoic consciousness itself, from that voice that talks to you in your head that you think you are, to step away from that, to unidentify with that part of your mind, which is not who you are. That's what this prayer is about. The prayer where we step away into our closet, that we don't use words, we don't use rational thought, we just are presence to presence in a state of being. He calls it dying to self. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Paul echoes that. The old man is dead. There's a new man now. To let that idea of yourself, that projection of yourself, go and find this new identity. 
because only then can we really experience what is present, what is right here and now. When all of that interior clutter is cleared away, when that dust settles, now we can see what is right in front of us. That is the way of Jesus. That is the contemplative way. That's exactly what we're talking about. We know God by experiencing presence with no interior clutter, without that filter that tells us what reality is rather than just seeing what is there. And this process of getting to know God, fasting is one of those processes. Fasting is another way to be able to clear out that interior space so that something can happen, an encounter between us and and our Father, our Lord. But the problem is we get fasting all wrong, too. We have all these ideas about fasting that we're going to have to deal with. We make it legal, don't we? It's something we got to do. Now, we make it a ritual. We make it obligatory. We make it quid pro quo. We have all these ways of coming at fasting that are going to just take the life out of it, take all the efficacy out of it. Let's take a look at what Jesus actually says at Matthew 6, starting at verse 16. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Okay, so this is going to be the same formula that he had for almsgiving and the same one that he had for prayer because they would do it their way. He says, when you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your heavenly Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here we are with that mysterious Father again, the one that we can't put into words, the one that we can only experience in real time. If we step away from all of this ritual and all of this culture, we can get back into that place. And this idea of reward, we have to take a look at that too. Because when we think of a reward, we think of something that we perform now and later we're going to get a reward. Either it's a paycheck or it's a badge or it's recognition. It's going to be something, right? And those two are separated in time. But the kind of reward that we're talking about here from the Father is all instantaneous. It's simultaneous. It is the connection that happens when we step outside of ourselves and we just allow ourselves to be present, that sense of connection. That is the reward. There's nothing else beyond the moment because nothing else beyond the moment actually exists. You realize that, right? The past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. Someone outside of this room doesn't exist. Not to us. They do to themselves and somebody else. But right now, this is it. This is all we've got. If the reward's not here, it doesn't exist either. So whatever we're looking for, if we're thinking of crowns in heaven or thinking whatever, that's not what this is about. This is about the joy, the absolute connection, that knowing that we are connected that changes everything. So this is the same formula that he had with alms and with prayer. It's an interior process that he's pointing us to, this idea of fasting. Now, fasting itself was part of ancient Jewish ritual life in a big way. And it was obligatory, and it was legal, because that's the way they did it. There were set fasts that they needed to participate in during the week. Well, they were supposed to. A lot of people didn't, of course. 
but mostly Mondays and Thursdays were fast days in uh, first century Judaism. Take a look at Luke 18, and this illustrates this a little bit, starting at verse 9. And Jesus also told his par- this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. All right? See that line there? He's telling this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And see, that's what happens when we go all legal. Because if we are following the law and we think we are doing everything just right, we get that sense of entitlement, don't we? We get that sense of arrogance. We get that sense that we are better than because we are doing this and these poor unwashed are not. And this is what always happens when we set things up in this fashion. This is what Jesus is trying to deconstruct. Because righteousness, connection with God, kingdom has nothing to do with that. So he says this to those who are viewing others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now understand that the tax collector was like a pedophile in our culture today. It was the lowest of the absolute low. These people were disgusting, despicable. They were in bed with the Romans, the oppressors, and so on and so forth. So he is picking two people. He could have picked a Samaritan and other people that were at the bottom of the heap, but a Pharisee and a tax collector, one at the top of public esteem and one at the very bottom. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's that descent again. We need to descend. We need to strip everything away before we can see what is true and then rise on the other side with it. Because the Pharisee kept the law, because the Pharisee kept this ritual practice twice a day, twice a week, right? Mondays, Thursdays probably. He considered himself righteousness, righteous. He considered himself above all others. He was prideful. He was arrogant. He was entitled. And Jesus is contrasting these two to try to make this point. And the Pharisees made sure that everybody knew that they were fasting. He says, Jesus says they neglected their appearance. You know what they actually did? Well, first of all, they would put all on mournful airs. You know, it's like, you know, they would have the sad eyes and the appearance and all this kind of thing. And they would walk around looking for sympathy no cheerfulness, they wouldn't laugh, they wouldn't smile, they wouldn't do any of that kind of stuff. They wouldn't wash their face. They would actually take ash, ashes, and they would put them on their head and they would rub them into their cheeks so that they would look gray and and sallow and famished and mournful and hungry, suffering. They actually did this stuff so that they could telegraph to everybody what they were doing and how how righteous they were. It's amazing. How many ways we can get this wrong? How we can be so focused on the wrong things that we would go into behavior like this, but we do it all the time to a lesser degree. We don't use ash anymore, but think about it. We have ways of letting people know passive-aggressively what it is we're going through, don't we? Yes. 
So we can get fasting wrong in all sorts of ways. First thing we can do is looking at fasting as a proof of righteousness. That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were using it as a proof of righteousness. If everybody knew that they were following the code, then they were going to be seen as righteous to others. They're not thinking about God at this point. They're thinking about how they look and how they can climb the social ladder, what dinners they're going to get invited to, all those sorts of things. When it comes to fasting, it's gigo. Remember gigo? Garbage in, garbage out. What you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. That's a sacrament. A sacrament is an outward expression of an inward transformation. Any ritual is the same thing. It's what we bring to it that we are going to take out of it. What are we bringing to this? Of course, this is a wrong state of heart. Jesus says, wash your face, anoint yourself, be cheerful, laugh at jokes, tell jokes. No one should be able to tell that you are fasting when you're doing it, except your Father who is in secret, except your Father who is part of the mystery around you. And then this reward, this simultaneous, in-time, real-time feeling of connection, of purpose. That's it. We can also look fast at fasting as a law, an obligation. And Jesus covered this in Matthew 5, the last, past chapter, when he talked about going the second mile. Remember? The first mile is the mile of obligation. The first mile is what you must do. If a Roman soldier came up to you on the road and commandeered your donkey or your cart, you had no choice. You had to go at that certain distance. But once that was over, they would release you and then in, commandeer somebody else, right? But Jesus says, if you are impressed to go one mile, go with them too. This is mind-blowing. We're talking about the Romans here, the oppressors, the evil ones. I would give them another mile. I'd rather eat pork, right? <laughs> but Jesus is saying, dude, because here's the thing. You get nothing from the first mile. It's the mile of obligation. It's what you have to do or you're going to be punished. If everything that you do is just out of fear of punishment, where is the value in that? There's no value. You're just trying to save your hide. The second mile is where everything happens. The second mile is where the transformation takes place. So, if we're fasting only as law, only as obligation, we're getting nothing out of it. I grew up Catholic. Many of us did here, it seems like. A lot of, lot of ex-Catholics here. Um, and during Lent, we had to fast. Every Friday, we had to fast. There was no meat that could be eaten on Fridays. I don't know if you remember. We had to pull out the fish, right? We, uh, the idea was that you had to give up something that you loved in order to get this penance done, in order to have this, this uh, connection with God again. We had to give up something. It, it, was, it, was, it was just back to front, it was like a self-inflicted punishment that we would do as penance in order to get back in God's favor. This whole idea of Mardi Gras that you're probably familiar with. You know what Mardi Gras means in French? Fat Tuesday. So Mardi Gras is the Tuesday before Ash Wednesday that begins the fast of Lent for 40 days. And so what did they have? They had carnivals. You know where carnival came from? The word is carnevale. Literally means farewell to meat. <laughs> <laughs> so these are loopholes that we've created for ourselves when we start looking at something as law when we look at it as an obligation then we're going to be looking for any excuse right to indulge all around that one thing that we are forced to be able to do so before we're forced to abstain we're going to just party it out 
right? And then afterwards, we're going to party again. Where is the attitude that is helping us to understand what fasting is really all about? Or we can look at fasting as a quid pro quo, right? Something for something. We give something, we get something in return. There's that idea that we fast until something happens. Ever heard of push, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens? Same idea. We're going to pray until something happens. We're going to pray until we get the outcome we want. We're going to pray until we get the answer we're looking for. We're going to fast until we do the same. Something for something. Going to keep fasting until we get this outcome. I remember, this is getting to be 30 years ago, I think. I was having one of the worst times in my life. And I just was desperate to get some answers. You know, what is God trying to tell me? What is this all about? What's going on? So I decided to do a fast. I'm going to do a fast until I get these answers I'm going for. I got out three days. I remember three days on nothing but water. I did drink water. Three days. Got nothing. I had no answer. I had no idea. I was more confused than I was before I started the fast. And so what did I do? I ordered a large pizza large pizza. I sat down alone in my apartment and I watched Lawrence of Arabia all three hours and ate that whole pizza by myself. That's what I got out of my fast. Pizza and Lawrence of Arabia. Look at what Isaiah has to say about fasting and see if this can start to bring it into a better focus. Chapter 58, starting at verse 3. I'm going to read from the Good News Bible version. I don't think Alex had that version, so it may not jive with what's up there, but if you're looking at your inserts, it'll match up. Isaiah says, The people ask, Why should we fast if the Lord never notices? Why should we go without food if he pays no attention? The Lord says to them, The truth is that at the same time you fast, you pursue your own interests and oppress your workers. Your fasting makes you violent and you quarrel and fight. Do you think this kind of fasting will make me listen to your prayers? When you fast, you make yourselves suffer. You bow your heads low like a blade of grass and spread out sackcloth and ashes to lie on. Is that what you call fasting? Do you think I will be pleased with that? The kind of fasting I want is this. Remove the chains of oppression and the yoke of injustice and let the oppressed go free. Share your food with the hungry and open your homes to the homeless poor. Give clothes to those who have nothing to wear and do not refuse to help your own relatives. Then my favor will shine on you like the morning sun and your wounds will be quickly healed. I will always be with you to save you and my presence will protect you on every side. So what is this passage telling us? It's telling us, I think, that fasting doesn't work to change God's mind about anything. It doesn't influence him. It doesn't coerce him. It doesn't create outcomes or answers that we want. It tells us that God is not interested in penance or ritual unless or until it is paving the way and pointing us toward that personal transformation. When fasting is doing that, when ritual practice is doing that, funneling us in, clearing us out, opening us up to that encounter, that is what it's supposed to do. That's what religion is supposed to do. Law can do that as well. But he's not interested in the thing itself. It's meaningless. 
unless the heart is bringing something to it, unless it's motivating us to help others to do the same and giving them what they need to be able to have the equilibrium, the foundation to be able to find their own way. Because before we act in love, before we can forgive others, before we can act to love others and free, help free others, we have to free ourselves. We can only give what we've got, only what we have received ourselves. Once we have come to know the truth, then we have the opportunity to turn around and to present that to others. Fasting, like contemplative prayer, focuses the mind, focuses the body on this present moment. When you're hungry, it grounds you. You're feeling your body. It brings you into the moment. To keep that going, to keep yourself right here, right now, contemplative prayer, fasting, keeps us here now where God is where God only is. The only place we can ever access God is right here and right now, ever. In this life, in the next, it's just going to be now. It's just going to be here. God is here and now, not in some thought process that we abstractly move away in, not in our imaginings of some other place or time. It's right here, right now. God is here and always now. Fasting and prayer, contemplative prayer, brings us here where God is. This way of Jesus is the only way because it is the means and the way of descending, clearing off that space so that we can experience true connection, true love, experience the presence of our God. And when we imagine that our spiritual journey is anything else, whether that's legal or contractual, theological, doctrinal, in any way obligatory, we're just digging in the wrong spot. As Jesus would say, you have your reward in full. Whatever you got out of that, materially, physically, whatever, that's it. There is no further movement along this way. You're blocked. If we remain focused on performance as the end-all and the be-all of our spiritual journeys, it's as if we're saying that the training wheels on our bike are permanent. They're never going to come off. And that the highest expression of riding a bike <laughs> is riding with these training wheels on, never realizing how they limit us, never realizing how they telegraph to the rest of the world how unripe we are, how unready we are to fulfill our purpose as human beings or as bike riders. And if we're waiting for a reward, I'm telling you, if you're waiting for anything, you're not in the kingdom. If you're waiting for anything, you're not in heaven because kingdom and heaven are about this moment being just enough, this moment being just this, right? Everything here, now. And if we're waiting for a reward, we're either going to feel entitled to that reward because we feel we've done everything we were supposed to do or we're going to feel shameful because we fear that we haven't or we know that we haven't. We're either going to feel arrogant about those who haven't or we're going to be fearful for ourselves. That place in the middle is where we want to be 
And it only comes from the clearing away that Jesus is talking about. He wraps all this up, this whole section, at verse 19 of Matthew 6. This beautiful expression where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the shorthand for all the points that he has made, right? Where is our heart? Where's our deepest desire? What do we value the most? Has that become imprinted with God's deepest desire and value? Or are we still going off on whatever is cultural, whatever our minds tell us is the thing that we need? Because if we're still wrapped up in what is temporal, what is fleeting, what is always changing, then we know that the ego mind is still in charge. We have not found who we really are. Following the way of Jesus allows us to finally experience our egoic mind, that voice that talks to us, as the tool that it is. An essential tool, the interface that we use to do everything that we do in life as long as we're breathing here, but it's just a tool. We need to use the tool, not let the tool use us. Not to imagine that's who we are. When we can step outside of that, we can start to see the task within the task. We can see past the illusion that the law and ritual is the truth and not just a pointer toward that truth, not just the training wheels that we need for a period of time as we're moving along this way. Then we can use the tools of ego, of law, of ritual, to keep us grounded, to keep us in relationship long enough until heaven and earth pass away, merge in our hearts and in our lives so we're just living this thing almost effortlessly. Until it's merged in our hearts, we keep the training wheels on. But Jesus is saying, your goal is to kick those things off and just fly. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you again for Scripture. It is absolutely astounding what is here, what has been bequeathed to us over the millennia. The storehouse of wisdom, the way that it points us back to you, Help us to let go of anything that would limit us from seeing the scripture in the way that you have intended it, in the way that it can really guide us and teach us and point us back to you. And then extend that to everything in our lives. Help us to be willing to sell everything and give it away so that we can follow you more directly. Help us to let go of any of the sacred cows that may be still in our thinking, still in our personal theologies, so that we can see the truth that is right in front of us, see your presence right in front of us. Help us to have the courage to do that, Lord, and help us to have the perseverance to keep on undistracted, undiverted, 
when life gets hard. And help us to learn more and more to instinctively turn and face you and lean into you in the moment, whatever is happening, even a difficult moment, to lean into you and find the healing and the connection that is only present here and now. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.